Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to talk with Chris Herring, former Wall Street Journal writer, knows the Knicks really well, about that situation and happened to tie in also with the Bulls because now he's a senior NBA writer for 538 and ESPN's Troob Network and based in Chicago, so certainly follows that team closely. So we start with them, but we end up talking about the whole NBA, teams he's interested in watching and everything else. Fun conversation and this week's episode is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. You can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan and you can post jobs for free. And our old friends at Audible. You can go to audible.com slash try now for a free trial subscription along with an audiobook. It's a great service. I use it all the time. Conversation with Chris runs about an hour 45. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, no problem at all, man. Thank you for having me. We've been talking for a couple of weeks about doing this, and it just so happens that the two teams that you're kind of most affiliated with, I think is probably the best best word for it, have both gotten more interesting in the last little bit. I guess we'll start with the Knicks, because their, their stuff is more drama. I mean, they did have a nice win against the Spurs on Sunday, but... How do you think that the the current Oakley stuff affects them beyond the immediate? I mean, it just it looks bad. And the PR side of it, it can have a bigger impact, I think, than what people realize. I don't think stuff lasts forever in terms of perceptions necessarily. But you, you look at the bigger impact that some of this stuff can have. And if you start adding everything up, you look at not only the situation with Oakley, but it is a big thing. And it, I mean, it was noticed league-wide. You had some of the biggest names in the sport reacting to it between Chris Paul, LeBron James. Obviously, the play, the Knicks players had thoughts about it. Carmelo didn't want to wade too deeply into that water, but everybody noticed this, and, and everyone kind of knows what Charles Oakley's reputation is around the league. And so people took note of that. Uh, LeBron took issue with what Phil Jackson said earlier in the season about his posse, and Carmelo even came out on that issue and said he had no idea why Phil was even bringing that up. And you start piecing these things together and you realize there's just no motivation right now for someone to really look up and say, I want to play for that team. It's just not a team that even with talented players on the roster is not performing well. The money is not substantially different anymore the way that maybe at one time it could have been. There's no real motivation for people to play there under these sorts of circumstances where you might be blacklisted at some point from being able to come to a game and just enjoy a game or you know, if your team president is going to come talk about you whether in that moment or once you leave the team it's just not a comfortable scenario you look at the way that Carmelo has kind of had to deal with the subtweeting from Phil and kind of the sniping in that situation it just looks totally dysfunctional which you know when we talk about the Knicks that's not unusual for them to be dysfunctional but the last few weeks have just kind of taken stuff to another level uh, between the, the Derrick Rose situation and Phil's comments and then Phil essentially just he doesn't even tweet that much but Going out of his way to tweet to praise an article that, you know, is, is calling into question Carmelo's star level at this point, star power at this point. So it's just a really weird situation, even for a team that we're used to the weird, odd situations being normal. These last three, four weeks have just been unreal, even for a team like the Knicks. With the Knicks and, and many other teams, especially those in major markets, I like to think about it in terms of the three main ways that teams can add star talent. So you can add star talent through the draft. It's probably the right. easiest way because it doesn't involve anybody's choice, really. It just involves getting the right pick, maybe some luck, depending on how good or bad you are, and getting and drafting right. 
Second way is through a trade. So that requires accumulation of assets and some good fortune as the Celtics are dealing with right now. You kind of do need that to get a star. You need the right opportunity. And then the third is through free agency. And what we've learned over the last couple of years is that while ownership is not the most important part of that, it does seem like it is on the fringes and can sometimes get in a little bit larger. And ownership quality is something that's very complicated to discuss because it involves a lot of different things. Not only willingness to pay the luxury tax, but commitment to having high-quality personnel and numerous other things, whether they make your life more difficult or not. And what the Knicks are, what to me, with this situation, the resonance with it, is that they're not helping themselves in any of those categories with this. I mean, well, that that's not, I wouldn't even argue that that's new. Um, right, it isn't. You know, that, I mean, that's, that's a problem the Knicks have had for a while. Now, where they did have, at one point, I mean, they've had, they kind of have had these ebbs and flows where they've been in better position to make trades. Obviously, to even get a player like Carmelo, they had a pretty good accumulation of assets, but they, they used them all in that one situation. Maybe not all of them, because if they'd used them all, they wouldn't have had anything to trade for Bargnani. But, you know, once they, once they made that move, they really didn't have anything left to deal. So that, you know, that's one of the few things I give them a little bit of credit for, although you don't want to give too much credit for just acting like a normal franchise. The one thing Phil hasn't done is, is trade away trade away their future picks. So they're they're actually positioned fine from that perspective. At least with the first round picks, they they have all their future first round picks going forward. And that's not a situation that we're used to with this team. But you know, if you want to go further than that, you look at a situation like the one they have this year, and you you, you know, at least I would probably kick myself a little bit for the idea that I traded away Robin Lopez, who now we're hearing about the Bulls maybe dangling, maybe not, for trade purposes to try to, to add some youth to their team or a draft pick to their team. Knicks could have just as easily kept the roster that they had. I actually made an argument in the column last year that, you know, obviously they didn't make the playoffs last year. They weren't particularly close to making it. But I would have been fine with having another average to subpar year with the same roster that they had last year just because of the fact that a, they, they weren't that bad last year. If you remember, they actually were 544 games into the season. They only started to really flounder when, when Lance Thomas got hurt and Carmelo had an ankle injury where he tripped during the Celtics game. And they really went downhill from there. I think they lost 9 of 10, and that was a stretch in which Derek Fisher got fired. But basically, they had a lot of young players on that team. And because they have all their draft picks going forward now, there wouldn't have been anything that wrong with bottoming out this year. If you do have a 31 season, a 25 one season, there really would have been nothing wrong with that because you could you could use that for a draft pick. And now having Derrick Rose on the roster, having a guy like Noah on the roster, these are guys that hate to lose, that in some cases will push themselves to play because they hate to lose so much. And you know they're they're good enough players to where they'll they'll put up good games every now and then and get you a win. Derrick Rose will get you 30 points and might help you win a game one night. And I don't think this is a win-now situation for them. I mean, if anything, because of all the challenges they have in terms of their ability to trade, they don't really have that many assets on the roster. And because of the fact that the ownership is kind of inept as it has been for years, the best way to add talent to this team really is to go get yourself a good draft pick. Go get someone who's young enough to play with Porzingis for the years to come who's talented. And by getting people through a a trade for Derrick Rose that is a rental essentially – you put yourself right in the middle again. It's really the worst place to be in the NBA. You're either going to be a contender or you're going to be a bad team. You don't want to be in the middle, but that's kind of what they've put themselves in. It's like a high-end bad team. 
And that, that's just not helpful in this situation. It doesn't help you to be the 10th seed in the East or wherever they're going to finish. And so I really – that was why I didn't understand their summer. I would have been fine with kind of repeating what they did the year before, maybe show some progression. Maybe Jaron Grant actually pans out to be a better player than what he was last year. And you look up and he's shooting 35% from three, still got plenty of room to grow as a player. But they should have been fine with the idea of just continuing what they were doing last year and then going for it this year. With, with the crop of guys that you'll have in this free agency class instead of going out, spending big on Noah, trading for Derrick Rose, and giving up a pretty good asset in Robin Lopez to do it. What you hit on at the end, I think, is what what really makes their story a lot more dangerous, which is that they compounded, if you want to call it the mistake, with, with Derrick Rose and just going in that direction. And, and you're right on the idea that it made them better in a way that wasn't sustainable. But spending money on Noah in particular, but also Courtney Lee to a point because he doesn't fit in with Porzingis' timeline. Like That's a much better contract, but the, yeah. the philosophy of it is, is, is similarly flawed. And what that means is that you lose another piece of flexibility that you would have had, which is to add salary either through getting free agents or through a trade if you don't get the right guys. And you can mold the roster more. Now, when you have immovable salary, it makes it so much harder to improve because it takes away one of your biggest options. Exactly. And I mean, the truth is I, I did a, a radio interview a day or two ago and they asked, you know, what destinations make the most sense for Carmelo? And it's like, I mean, we could have that conversation all day long if you want to, but it's kind of irrelevant unless Carmelo decides he wants to be traded in the first place. And that, that, is probably, I mean, more so than Noah, which is a huge thing for them because he's probably an untradeable deal at the moment. But, I mean, Carmelo could just as easily be untradeable just because of the fact that he could just decide he doesn't feel like being traded. And so it's just a pretty bad spot to be in when you can't trade someone and you really kind of need that flexibility to be able to, to alter the roster. You cannot be in a rebuild when you really cannot reshape the roster the way you need to, to cut salary, to, to be able to add more movable uh, pieces on the team to experiment. I mean, you know, for all the credit that a lot of people will give Sam Hinkie now in hindsight, I think one of the things that, you know, I kind of admire about what they were doing is that they were, they were basically experimenting. I mean, they're obviously at a much different place than where the Knicks are right now, but the freedom to experiment and experiment a lot with different things would be nice to figure out what sorts of pieces work best with a certain type of player. You're still learning about Porzingis. I know he hasn't been totally healthy for the last few weeks, but the fact that he gave up 40 to, to Jokic the other day, um, I mean, he's still got growing to do as, as a defensive player, although he's a, a very good rim protector. He's still got to figure out how to get out to the perimeter and guard. If he can't do that, you know, who do you put around him defensively? Who do you put around him offensively? What sorts of point guards is he going to play the best with? He obviously has some rapport now with Rose and someone that can get to the basket quite a bit. But you still have a lot of learning to do about him. And you still have a lot of learning to figure out what he's going to play like when Carmelo's not there. So, I mean, obviously you want to be able to trade Carmelo if you can to start over, but you, you're going to have a lot of learning to do if and when that actually takes place. And it would be nice to be able to experiment with those things, but they just really don't have an ideal roster in place to do that. Um, I, I do like the one good thing that came of the Derrick Rose trade for them, I think, was Justin Holiday. He's been a, a really good pickup for them. He's the kind of player you might want to keep around for the next run with this team when it looks different. But um, aside from him, it would have been really nice to have been, been able to experiment with this team because 
you really don't know yet which players are going to be best with Porzingis. Rotation caliber wings are hard to find. Whether they're, you know, even if it's the fourth or fifth wing, if they're good enough to play 10 to 15 minutes, right now that's an incredibly useful thing to have. And they're, especially because a lot of players who come into the league, even if it's a high draft pick, it takes them time to figure it out. So it takes a long time for that pool to deepen, and it's very shallow right now. So if you have players like Holiday, it certainly helps. And with Mello, the other huge problem with a player with a no-trade clause is that it's also possible, even if he's not untradeable, that he's untradeable to teams that can really help you in terms of what they can give back. You're never going to do a trade that hurts you, but it can be a very marginal help if the only team you can really negotiate with is the Clippers or maybe the Cavs. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. The first problem, again, is is the no-trade, just because it limits where... I mean, it limits whether you can send him anywhere first, but then even within that, Carmelo's a very different kind of person, and he's got a different kind of stature within the league. He has a a high-profile spouse in in terms of the kind of work she does and the industry that she's in. They were kind of on their their heads to get out of Denver, which, you know, in my opinion, I actually like the city of Denver. I think it's a fun place, but, you know, and even when he was considering places to go as a free agent a couple years ago— from what I had been told and had heard, Lala wasn't really all that keen on the idea of living even in Chicago, which is a, a very cosmopolitan city. Uh, you know, it's a, the third biggest city in this country. Uh, it's not on a coast necessarily, but there's plenty to do in Chicago. It's, you know, a lot of players love this city. And so if that's kind of the standard that you're looking at these places with, you know, I don't expect that Carmelo is going to go to Sacramento or going to want to. I don't expect that Carmelo is want to go to going to want to play in a small place unless it's a contender unless it's a situation where he's joining up with the best friend like a LeBron or like a Chris Paul so based on all those things and the fact that like you said a lot of these teams are not going to have the assets um, or even if they do have the assets they're not going to trade those assets um, away because they see themselves as contenders you're not going to get Blake Griffin back in a trade and in that case you're not going to get a first rounder in a trade more than likely because they can't trade one for a very long time likely well after you know Phil is, is long gone from this job. So there are a lot of uh, challenges in place. And again, it, it really does raise the question of why, how and why did Carmelo even get the no-trade clause at that point in his career? I mean, there are a couple players that should get that. You could make the argument that Carmelo at one point in his career was worth it. You could even go as far as to argue that he was worth it when he signed that deal. But it, it's really coming back to bite the Knicks in the butt here because it just doesn't look smart at this point when you really need to hit the reset button and you can't you don't have full control of the ability to do that all good points and where i struggle with them is i have a few ideas but knowing what we agree on and you know we can say that our opinions are could be different from phil and from their front office speaking more broadly including dolan and whoever else where do they go from here? Because some of the things that I would do, like I would consider moving Courtney Lee, not because he's a bad player, but because he doesn't fit in with the timeline, if you can clear his money and things like that. But I'm not sure, I, I'm confident that at least off the top of my head, that the Knicks aren't going to lean in that direction. So like, are they really just going to kind of hold the fort and maybe they trade Melo if they can? I mean, what I could see happening, I, I think they're going to obviously try to, to move Melo if they can. They're, they're going to need his approval to do it. Although it does kind of seem like they've been trying to, to push and push that envelope further, despite the fact that Carmelo, everything he said, makes it sound like he'd like to be in New York. And so it's hard to look at what Phil's been doing and saying publicly and through Twitter and everything else and not feel like he's pushing him in that direction. But it's obviously up to Carmelo. But 
if they're able to move him or even if they're not able to, it doesn't change the fact that, you know, teams will swing and miss in free agency and they'll need backup plans and contingency plans to, to move to once those things fall through. And assuming Carmelo makes it through this season healthy, the Knicks, I would think, would want to reignite those conversations because, you know, Carmelo's been kind of banged up at times the last few years. You want to trade him while he still has, you know, the, the highest possible value. And so it's a possibility that something happens over the summer. There's no reason that if you do decide that you're going to try to hit the reset button as much as you can within reason. So maybe not Noah, maybe not Melo, but Courtney Lee and players like that that maybe you deal Lee somewhere else um, while he's still on the front end of this contract. He's had a pretty good season in terms of shooting the ball. Hasn't been great defensively, but has had his good moments. And so there's no reason that you can't do some of this piecemeal with the expectation that you'll, you'll move other people when you can and do what you can to move other people. Uh, obviously, Rose will come off the books as well. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But, I mean, it, it, it will be awkward until they're able to settle the mellow question just because – you know, I think you can really Noah's contract is awful and it's probably not one that you can move. But if you do actually manage to find a trade partner with Carmelo for Carmelo that makes him happy and depending on what you bring back, I mean, their their situation's not that bad because I think, like you said, we could you could find teams that will take Lee. He's still a productive player. He's still young enough to where he can help a lot of different teams. And he could, frankly, help you. It's just not on the right timeline again. So I think you can survive with one bad contract that doesn't really fit everything else. But if you've got a ton of contracts like that or if you've got a lot of money committed to it where it's not just uh, Melo's 26 or $27 million, but also his and Noah's 17 or 18 or whatever it is. That's when you start getting in trouble is when it's two or three contracts that are bad as opposed to just one. Heck, the Knicks did well when it was just the one contract that Amari had um, yeah. for one season. So you can you can get around one contract. I think it's when you start getting into two and three big contracts that really weigh you down. It's more that it's just awkward right now. I don't think that it's it's that they can't get out of it to put themselves in a better situation, but they do have to find a way around Melo's situation for now. I was sitting there thinking about the the piece that I wrote for the Sporting News kind of during the offseason about how or before the offseason was my preview for the next saying, basically the best thing they could do is nothing, but they're never going to do nothing. And, you know, I, I, was, I was sitting there thinking, like, if they had, if all they had really done was just kind of rolled through the offseason, made the draft picks, brought in guys like Kuzminskis and Heron Gomez, they would be looking at a pretty good situation right now. Yeah, I mean, that's a, I, I literally have a piece to my editors right now. I think it'll probably come out tomorrow, but it, it's literally making that same argument that um, a lot of times we're, if they could just be patient enough to just be happy with their continuity and just stand pat, they'd be fine. Uh, like I said, and it, it, a lot of times it seems counterintuitive because when you have a, a season like last year where they started 22 and 22 under Fisher, stuff obviously went sour after that. But there were a lot of good things about that situation at the time. I actually thought Fisher was improving a little bit as a coach. He had finally found a way to manage the rotation with Lopez and, and Porzingis and basically – playing them together and then swapping one out for the other. It seemed to be working well. He was playing Carmelo at the right times of the quarters and kind of subbing him out at certain moments that seemed really smart. He was ending games with Porzingis at the five, which was something that prior to that they'd been reluctant to do. It just kind of seemed like he knew, he had a sense of the direction he wanted to move in. He was trying to get more comfortable with the idea of moving away from the triangle and Phil undercut him with that and then allowed Hornacek to do that and move away from it. But I actually thought they were moving in the right direction. They had a lot of the right personnel. And then stuff went off the rails for a little bit as they got injured. But I really liked a lot of what I was seeing right in the, you know, the, the tail end of the first half of last season for them. And then they kind of changed everything. They, they fire Fisher. They get to the offseason. They trade away the player who I think actually showed the most progress 
from the first half to the second half in Lopez. Grant showed a lot of progression from the first half to the second half. His numbers actually looked somewhat similar to Rose's in terms of efficiency, three-point shooting, and what have you. And they they changed up so much of the stuff. And, you know, I, I actually think you kind of undercut yourself a little bit when you do that because the question about the offense, is the offense the problem? Is the triangle the problem? Is it solely the defense that's the problem? You can't really pinpoint what is the biggest issue with your team when you keep changing the team every year. And it just becomes a total experiment every single year. There's no accountability on Phil. And I'm almost getting to a point now where with as bad as things have gotten and when you read these pieces from Charlie Rosen where it never even points a finger anywhere near Phil and Phil obviously has his point of view as to what's wrong with the team. When you keep changing everything from overhauling it and kicking Woodson out and then the next year bringing Fisher in and then calling that year zero and then kicking Fisher out the next season and then bringing in Rambis and then Rambis calling it year zero and it you know and overhauling the roster entirely every single time and now kind of scapegoating Carmelo through the media and subtweeting him you keep changing the guy that you blame and I kind of feel like it's hard to look at it and not feel like it's just Phil sort of trying to distance himself from this and you can't you know if they could just stand pat you could actually get a sense as to what's wrong and just try to tweak one thing instead of overhauling the whole thing. And, um, you know, at some point it is going to reach a level where Phil is going to get replaced one way or the other. He's going to leave. It sounds like Dolan's not going to fire him. But, I, I mean, it's just very odd to me that they keep overhauling everything when, you know, you actually do make some progress with one thing and then you, you scrap the whole thing and change it entirely. And so as bad as they were at times last year, I didn't think everything was wrong with that team. I think they could have tweaked some things left it alone, and then really gone for it this year instead of doing it this past summer and overspending on a guy like Noah. I certainly see some of those arguments, not all of them, also with what's going on with the Bulls, that the Bulls are dealing with this circumstance where they changed so many things at once and a lot of the things didn't fit together. And while you could make each one of their moves justifiable in the abstract, in conjunction, it was really hard to fit together. Yeah, I mean, both these teams, um, and I know we're pivoting to the Bulls now, but both these teams are kind of suffering from the same thing. They're not picking a clear direction. Both teams were kind of at a crossroads of, of, of sorts when you really think about it. The, the Knicks have this revelation in Porzingis. And so do you build around him or do you try to win for Carmelo right away? And then you look at the situation with the Bulls. You've got Butler. Are you going to trade Butler to Minnesota and try to rebuild around Chris Dunn and other people? Or are you going to try to go for it all right now? And, and obviously they both kind of went for this pseudo win now strategy that obviously wasn't going to yield a championship. But that's kind of the bigger question is like, well, what's the end game if all you're shooting for is like at best maybe a six seed? They both decided to go for it with rosters that really don't mesh particularly well together. There's some talent there, but it's kind of aged talent or diminished talent because of injuries and other issues. But the Bulls did the exact same thing. And I I actually feel like these two teams before the season, I struggled to, to try to pinpoint which one was going to be better than the other because they were both so flawed. The Bulls, because of the spacing concerns, the Knicks because of some of the injury concerns and, and also the question of, you know, who's going to defend on this team and are the guys that are going to play out there together for the Knicks, are they going to defend together? You have good individual defenders, but they may not really help with each other's strengths and weaknesses very well. So it, it, it's just been a weird year for the two of them. You know, it's ironic that they made the big trade with each other to kind of end up in essentially the same spot because I think they're both going to have to do some real soul searching in the offseason, you know, 
do they want to continue with Wade if you're the Bulls? You're obviously going to lose Rondo at the end of this year more than likely since you, you have very little of his money guaranteed next year. But the Knicks, you know, it, it, I just don't see what direction either one of them is headed in. And, you know, they both – there's real problems with both sides there. The Bulls, I think, even more so because you – you just don't – you're not getting anything from these guys that you've been drafting over the last couple of years. Portis has basically been out of the rotation. Jaron Grant plays and then doesn't play and hasn't played all that well at times. And then you've got Valentine who really hasn't played a whole lot either and hasn't played particularly well when he's been out there. McDermott has looked like he's regressed at times and has had issues with the concussion. So it's just a weird kind of place that both of these teams are in aside from the dysfunction but also just – even when there aren't the off-the-court concerns, just not playing particularly well on the court either, and it's not all that surprising. The analogy I would probably make is to, to actually just ships. So, like, the Bulls might be flawed, but at least they're nimble enough because they don't really have much in the way of bad contracts, and they have they have pretty good, pretty solid pick situation moving forward. So if they need to change course, they can. Now, you don't necessarily trust the person who's steering, who's navigating, but at least they can do that. The Knicks have basically turned themselves into an aircraft carrier for now. They can change that. You know, they can they can cut some weight. They can they can improve it with time. But it'll be a lot harder for them because they lack some of the same tools to improve. But at the same point, Porzingis is is a very interesting young piece that they can build around. So if they can kind of do more in line with what Donnie Walsh did and pare it down and figure it out, they can get to a good place. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's going to be challenging for, for both sides, I think, because the thing is the Bulls have decent players on their roster. I think Lopez is a very nice piece. Wade, I mean, I think it would be awkward to trade him because he was such a big get for them in a way, I think more for publicity reasons than really helping you win a title right now. But, I mean, somebody would take him. You know, there are definitely places that he could go and, you know, probably a better winning situation for him that maybe could help choose where he's going to go. But I think the challenge there is that depending on what you would get back in a trade, it's still a question of how do you build around Butler. And no, he's not an old guy by any means, but trying to build around someone that age. I mean, we've seen it work before. Obviously, the Celtics were able to do it. But, you know, you've got to find someone, again, on his timeline in a way. Whereas with Porzingis, it's a little bit easier if you've got the draft picks and you're in a good draft position. You can find guys to pair with him. You can find players to sign and stuff like that. The Bulls. You've got a high-level player that wants to win now and, you know, plays through injuries and plays through illnesses and tries to. How do you find a guy that is a similar type of talent to Butler or anywhere near that at 26 or 27 without breaking the bank to do it? You know, you may not be able to do that. And so uh, I, I was actually kind of surprised they didn't make a move over the summer. I think Butler's only raised his value since then. So they're not in a bad position. But again, it, it's I think they're actually both in positions where they can pivot and go toward a rebuild the bulls could probably start that process even more quickly because like you said they don't have the huge onerous contract on their on their back like they do with carmelo and with the noah or anything like that rondo will be off the books more than likely after this season but you know they they are in a tougher situation i I almost think in terms of the win now stuff I, i just don't know that there's a way for them to do it really quickly to find a player that can be a running mate for butler that's young enough because if he's anywhere near the age that Butler is that person it's going to really cost you a lot in free agency to get I'm assuming that it's someone the other teams want as well that ties in with a concern that I have with the Bulls in the idea of their aura because 
there aren't that many really, really high-end guys in this class that are going to change teams. There are a ton of high-end guys in this class, you know, Durant, Curry, Chris Paul. Those guys aren't going to change teams in all likelihood, and if they did, I don't think they would go to the Bulls. And so then you're dealing with this very narrow band, probably Gordon Hayward, maybe a few others, depending on how, how you classify it. I don't think Lowry's going anywhere. So you're right, because if you take out free agency, then it has to be through a trade. And players, while a great 23-year-old is more desirable than a great 27-year-old, great 23-year-olds don't get traded very often. So you're really <laughs> dealing with that same group. And with the Bulls, it does need to be individuals. Like I don't think you can reach the heights that they intend to reach with you know that that team mentality building more of like what the Pistons did I think you need another high-end player and it's going to be brutally hard for them to do it because in order to get a free agent now it's going to be a little bit different this year than the last couple you have to have the best case you don't have to have a good case you have to have the best case for that individual person and I don't think Chicago's at the point now where they can go to a Gordon Hayward or a Paul Millsap and say you should choose us over everyone else because yep I mean, and, and when you think about it, the best case scenario for a team like the Bulls would be something that, that you're really not planning on. But, but think back to when the Bulls won the lottery in the first place to get Derrick Rose, how small their odds were to even get him. What was it, like a 1% chance that they had that year? Because Sounds they had, about right, yeah. They had just barely missed the playoffs, but that's almost what you would need to really, really change the math here. Because, you know, it, it's a situation, you know, maybe they get the Kings pick. And that helps them out a little bit. They're, they're like right in that tough-to-tell area in terms of whether or not they would get that pick. I think it's top 10 protected for the Kings. It is. So, so I mean, that. but that's honestly, I mean, for how hard they're going to fight to make the playoffs. And you don't go out and get Dwayne Wade and Rondo and, and Robin Lopez and guys like that to miss the playoffs, obviously. And, you know, the Bulls are one of those teams where they awkwardly, kind of like the Atlanta Hawks, where they don't have anything real, real substantial to point to over the last 10 years or so. So what they did for years was they kind of highlighted, oh, you know, we've made the playoffs for eight years in a row or whatever it was, which, you know, is a nice accomplishment, I think, especially if you're a small market team. But when you're a big market team and that's the expectation anyway, I don't really think it's a, a thing to point to, especially when you don't win anything out of that. You know, but that would be the, the ultimate scenario for them is that if they do miss the playoffs, which would be sorely disappointing for them uh, after missing last year as well, actually with a winning record that you get a really high lottery pick, especially in a draft like this, that you luck out and you get a high lottery pick. Maybe you get Sacramento's pick as well, and that you build that way. Again, those guys would not be on Butler's timeline, but Butler is young enough to where if you really do get a stud player that, you know, three years from now, Butler is still young enough where, you know, he's still able to have an impact that maybe he can play with someone like that. It wouldn't be ideal. You know, you'd be looking at a situation where who knows, especially if it's a big man or something like that, maybe it, it turns into the same situation of what you have with Carmelo now. Although I do think Butler's obviously a much different player with his level of defense that he can play. But, you know, that that might be really your golden goose scenario there if you're the Bulls is you luck out through the lottery. But that's obviously not likely. I, I, I'm just not sure how that works. I mean, I, I still think that's very much in play for them. They could get a King's ransom for Butler with what his contract situation is and with the way he's played this year. They're not going to want to give him up, but it may end up making the most sense to do depending on how the season shakes out and what happens in the free agency. Because like you said, I don't think they're going to be able to sign a star player. And we haven't seen star players looking to go to Chicago in years. I mean, Wade, that's part of the reason they were so happy to get Wade, even though it's you know outside his prime. But um, I'm very curious to see what happens with them because they're very kind of, tenuous spot in one side of the fence or the other. 
While we still have a little bit more bulls to discuss, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about ZipRecruiter. Posting your job in one place at this point is not enough to find quality candidates, so if you want to get the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top sites, and now you can. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 200 plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. I have used it personally on the employee side or the prospective employee side as opposed to the employer side, but I can fully expect that the experience that I had, which was an incredibly well-designed platform, is even more true on the employer side considering the volume of information that you're dealing with. And ZipRecruiter allows employers to find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. You post once and you let the qualified candidates roll in and you can quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. So you can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan and you can post jobs for free and find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. One more time, that is ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan. Post jobs for free. And now back to Chris Herring. Do you have any sort of inclination yet on if Wade is still a Chicago Bull at the end of this season, whether he'll pick up his option or decline it? I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I think if he declines it, I don't necessarily think it would be because of money at that point. I think he's probably fine with the money. It's more a question of, you know, how important is winning to him at this very moment and where would he prefer to play? You know, I don't think there are going to be that many teams that have the money to make it work in terms of these contending teams. And I do think Wade, a big part of the reason they signed aside from just the money, the money was obviously part of it. And he made that very known with why he left Miami. I do think he's very comfortable in Chicago too. Who knows how much of that has changed over the last couple of weeks with kind of the turmoil that there's been, and, and, and frankly, the attack kind of on what he said and what Butler said, and I think it was a fair attack to kind of launch in his direction of, you know, the leadership and taking a shot at his leadership. But I, I do think, just generally speaking, I think he's very happy to be back in Chicago. He and I have talked about that several times. So I, I'm curious. I mean, I don't know. It will obviously be about what's most important to him, but I, if he does opt out, um, you know, I think it would be because he wants to take a serious look at playing elsewhere as opposed to just trying to get more money out of the situation. I don't I don't think that part of it is important to him anymore. I think the the reason he left for money last time was more about principle than it was money uh, with regards to Miami. Yes, the Bulls were willing to pay a little bit more for him, but I don't I also think that he like he said in his press conference, he wanted to play in Chicago for years. He obviously the idea of staying loyal to Miami for all those years won out and won him championships for having done that. But this time around, I don't think it's that big about, I don't think it's really about money this time as much as it would be, you know, how how much does he want to win another championship and who gives him a better chance of doing that than Chicago. But I I don't think the teams that are going to have the space to be able to do that and offer for him are, are that plentiful this summer. It's a little bit funny that the team that came out of nowhere in the Wade negotiations last time arguably has both the best present and the best future of any of the teams he considered, and that's the Denver Nuggets. That's funny. I thought you were going to say Milwaukee for a minute, because I, I, if I remember correctly, I think they were like kind of a weird dark horse in that situation. I don't remember uh, that, but that's possible, too. Um, that would have been fun. Uh, I mean, you want to talk about people that don't fit timelines. That would probably... I mean, I, I, I'm never going to begrudge a great player playing with really really good young players but I mean I you know that would have been a weird situation too you want to talk about another situation where one of the the key wing players can't shoot and throw weight in that situation in a team that kind of plays at times at a very fast tempo and just probably wouldn't work all that well with Wade but I mean yeah Denver would fit I mean they, they play at a, at a fast pace um I, I don't you know I, I it would be weird to think about Wade playing on the west coast all of a sudden uh I don't know why it's not like they're 
any reason that would preclude him from doing that. It's weird. They, they have a, a, a very bright future when you look at some of the young players on that roster. I actually really, really like Gary Harris. You know, Jokic has played great and obviously killed the Knicks just a couple days ago. I don't think that he would leave for that situation, though, kind of similar to Carmelo. You know, I was surprised in the first place that Wade was willing to even talk to these other teams. I was just like everyone else where I thought it was a total bluff to even talk about having a conversation with Milwaukee or, or Denver or Chicago or anybody else thinking that it was more of a ploy. And so I was very surprised that he actually did end up with Chicago at the end of the day. Um, I thought that was odd that he decided to do that because I didn't think they were headed anywhere in terms of a winning situation. So I'd be even more surprised if he does go to Denver where, you know, if you do that, you're pretty much guaranteeing that you're not, well, depending on how long you stay, that you're not going to go for one more title. And I mean, he probably did that by going to Chicago as well, but at least there was a hometown element to it. So it was a little bit easier to understand, but uh, I mean, I'm very interested to see what a lot of these guys do, you know, Wade being one of them as well. Also to see if any of them decide to take a really big pay cut for like one year, because if they want to play on the right, in the right situation, that's almost definitely going to be required. I mean, whether that's Wade this year, Mellow next year, it, it doesn't really matter because a lot of the best teams are, they're really full up. If they want to play with LeBron in Cleveland, if they're not going to get traded there, then they're going to have to take less money. Basically the same thing with the Clippers. Yep. I mean, I'm, I'm interested to see that. I mean, everyone saw the, the report, you know, that Howard Beck put out last year. It wasn't really a report as much as it was a great feature that he wrote about the dynamic between LeBron and Carmelo and the banana boat and how they hope to get that, you know, up and running and get to all play together before their career is over. And that's the obvious question, especially when you look at the way that the CBA was drawn up, uh, because so many of those guys are in leadership within the union. And the fact that they kind of put an incentive in there to be able to get paid more. What was it after their age 38 season or was it 36 that maybe it changed from 38? It it moved from 36 to 38. Basically, it allowed guys around their age to get longer contracts. Right. And, And so that was really interesting to me. On the one hand, because it allowed them to get longer contracts, which guarantees them more money. But on the flip side of that, if they're hoping to play together, I'm not really sure how more money really works with that equation. I mean, it might have just been more something that that LeBron and uh, Carmelo said. I'm sure they'd like to play together. But if they're looking to really sign big contracts and kind of break the bank one more time, I'm not really sure how that would happen you know, at least not all four of them. I mean, I, I do think it's very realistic that you can get two, maybe even three of them on the same team. But two things. One, it, it would be difficult, especially if LeBron is going to stay in Cleveland and try to have someone else join him. But two, I don't know how great a team that would be, at least with the addition of like one or two of those guys, given that, you know, Wade and, and Carmelo, for instance, if they go to join LeBron three years from now, I don't really think that that's going to be a very good defense. I mean, right now, depending on who else you're playing with those those three, I'm not really sure how good a defense that would be. So, you know, and, and making the money work if you're going to try to give those guys anywhere near max money. I mean, these guys still have egos. Maybe they take a little bit of a pay cut, but I don't think they're going to be taking minimum salaries to play together. So it, it, it would be interesting to see. It's interesting to, to theorize about, but short-term deals, long-term deals, whatever it is, I, I just I don't think that part is going to happen. I don't think you're going to have all four of them together, and I think it would be a challenge to even try to put three of them together at this point. The best way to get three of them together, and I'm not saying this is going to happen because I don't expect it to, though the first part of it did happen in the mock trade deadline podcast we did for Dunked On, is <laughs> if you got Mello onto the Clippers this year, then Wade could opt out and sign 
probably for the mid-level exception for them for next year. And then yeah. you'd have three of the four. And then eventually, you know, you could figure it out. Mello and and Paul in that situation could get paid basically whatever they want, as long as Balmer's willing to do it. And if they if they did it in that way, that's also the only way to make it really a realistically competitive team because they would have Blake assuming he stayed and DeAndre assuming he stayed. So that would be a really good team. They wouldn't have much shooting, but they wouldn't no, be a good team. And well, like if you started by saying that it, you know, likely would not happen. I mean, think about it. Wade again. I think it was more on principle that he left Miami for those reasons. But I, you know, I don't see he's done this before, so I won't put it past him. He's opted out of a big money opportunity before, but I think that was with the the thought that LeBron would do the same thing and that they would kind of bring the the band back together in Miami. But I, you know, I don't think he's going to leave. What was it, twenty four, twenty five million? on the table to take a mid-level exception, um, one. But two, you know, and this is going to be a reality at some point, maybe not this coming summer. If you do go to the Clippers and then you put Wade there as well, with you know, Carmelo being the small four that they haven't ever had there with that uh, that big four, that big three, whatever you'll call it. I mean, I don't think there's any way Wade should be the starter there. I mean, A, because of the shooting that you talked about, but Redick is also a great floor spacer. And so that would probably be the beginning of – the banana boat, one of them becoming a bench player, is that if you bring Wade, I mean, Wade becomes a, you know, slightly more agile version of Paul Pierce, I guess, in a way, bring him off the bench. You know, I, I just don't think it would make sense. You know, I don't think that's what they necessarily need on that team. Carmelo, I think, adds value because they, they need a small forward. Wade is going to add value to any team. I just don't, I don't think that he would do it for his own reasons. And like I said, I don't think, uh, maybe the last few weeks have changed this because of the turmoil there. I don't think he's unhappy in Chicago. I think he was happy to come to Chicago. I think he would be content with ending his career in Chicago. But we'll obviously see. I mean, I, I don't expect him to take a major pay cut, though, to join a situation in L.A. I could be totally wrong on that, but I, I would think that maybe he tries to figure out a way to get to Cleveland before he did that. Mm-hmm. I, I think Carmelo, I think it's more important for Carmelo to get to L.A. because he's got a home there. Uh, Lala's in the entertainment industry. It seems like they they have a greater need at small forward than you know than they would for Wade with the Clippers because they already have Redick at the two guard. So it, I don't know. There's a lot of possibilities there for sure. But I'm I'm curious to see how it plays out too. Why I'm intrigued by the whole situation is that there aren't that many high end players, and we can argue about where the non LeBrons of the banana boat. Well, Chris Paul's still great too when he's healthy. Where yes. you know where Melo and Wade fit into this whole paradigm, but. They've both shown a willingness to at least entertain the idea of changing their team if the situation wasn't right. And with a lot of talented players, you know, the play, the players who make a difference, who who theoretically have the flexibility to change teams, we're not going to see that. I mean, Steph Curry, Kyle Lowry, those type of guys aren't going to change teams. And we're going to see less of that in the new CBA because now players, granted younger players than these guys, but still those players have a greater, who are star caliber, have a greater incentive to stay where they are. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see what all changes. I mean, it, and the irony is that, again, I think a lot of this was a summer too late, a year too late with regards to those changes. You know, now you're locking stuff into place for Durant and Golden State, probably making it a little bit easier for them to keep who they have now in a situation where this might have really helped Oklahoma City to lock in a player like Durant. So, you know, I think that the first few years of this new CBA will be really interesting. I think a lot of that has to do with the age of the guys that are the best in the league. It feels like there's a really – you do have a lot of good young players, but they're, none of them at this point are franchise-changing players yet, you know, where they can will their teams into the playoffs right now. 
Towns is not like that. Porzingis isn't doing that. You know, we'll see with the Nuggets. I don't think Jokic is doing it by himself right now. You know, none of these guys, for the most part, are are able to will their teams in the playoffs like LeBron could in, in the early parts of his career. So because of that, you know, you, you, you can obviously see movement. And I do think you're going to see a lot of influence between, you know, how badly do I want to play with this one guy? How much better could I make my odds of winning a title if I join this person or this friend that I have on this team? And so, you know, you're going to see a lot of heavy influence from that potentially this summer and the next summer after that um, in a way that you may not, you know, it, it may change stuff quite a bit down the line for these younger guys. Like you said, it'll impact them more because of the way the new CBA was drawn up. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see the way these guys choose to end their careers. Um, if they choose to just stay put, if they choose to try to latch on with somebody else, if, you know, if, if we basically just see a, a Warriors-Cleveland matchup for the rest of time, they find ways to get these guys on cheap contracts and David Wests of the world keep going from, you know, contender to contender. But um, it's fun to think about, but it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And along those lines, the players that I'm also really interested in are the Anthony Davises of the world and DeMarcus Cousins. Will they take more money to be in a situation where they're not going to be competitive? Because as of now, it seems like that's that's the choice that they're going to be offered. And while neither New Orleans nor Sacramento is hopeless, it is very unlikely considering their current construction that they'll be championship caliber in the next couple of years at least. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm actually most curious about Davis because I think, you know, I, I don't know why. I, I guess for Cousins, sometimes I, it's it's kind of hard to separate the dysfunction sometimes. Is it him? And I mean, that was the great piece, obviously, that, that Kevin Arnovich just did, asking that question. How much of this is Cousins versus the Kings himself or itself, you know, that situation that he's in, which is, you know, the chicken and the egg. And Davis, I, I feel like, has a very good all-around game. You know, he obviously just signed the extension to, to stay there for longer. But, you know, it also seems like they're kind of making more long-term decisions around him that could actually be bad. The idea that they continue potentially, you know, maybe they go get Okafor and, and they continue to go get more and more centers while the league is faster and faster and more point guard based. And that they're at risk of losing very, very solid point guard. I don't think anyone calls Drew Holiday a star anymore. He was an all-star earlier in his career. But the fact that they risk losing him, and as they do that, they continue to potentially load up on even more centers at a time where Davis, you know, maybe not this instant, maybe not all the time, but sometime soon will probably be able to play center almost full time, um, where you don't need him to play power forward. You could have him serve as your center and your five man. I'm very curious to see what happens with that because I don't see that as a dysfunctional team. I do think there's a fundamental difference between some of the issues there in New Orleans, where I think a lot of them have just been health-based, where guys haven't been healthy. They have made some bad decisions in terms of signings. I, you know, I think Ashik was, was and has been you know, kind of a weird fit there, uh, in part because I think Davis is capable of playing center, and they kind of have forced that sometimes. But I, I do think that they could potentially turn things around, but they, they keep committing money to the wrong position, it seems like. So I don't see it as a dysfunctional place, but you know, who knows who gets into these guys' heads to kind of tell them, you'd be better off doing this. You know, I haven't really seen this happen yet, with the exception of maybe Durant, but I don't think this was his rationale. You know, it, you, you don't see guys necessarily just fleeing to go play for big markets anymore. Um, I think that was a wake-up call for the Knicks when Greg Monroe decided to sign with Milwaukee. But, you know, who knows what people are saying to Davis about that, if maybe he'd be better served playing elsewhere. All indications, I've heard that he loves playing in New Orleans, so I don't think it's a matter of where he is as much as, you know, how 
badly does he feel when they lose this much? Uh, how much does it kind of uh, tug at him, the idea that he wants to play for a winning team? You know, and, and, and also for a guy like Cousins, you know, the fact that you have experienced winning, at least in the Olympics, how do you change that quickly? And obviously moving is, is one way to do that. But the money is significant. You know, I know it's, you know, people talk about the difference between four years, five years, and, and obviously the gap closing as you stay for a longer amount of time. If you were to stay in, you know, let's say he moves and then he obviously would get a fifth year somewhere else eventually. Um, and so maybe the gap isn't as significant. But um, that's a lot of money to turn down when you could just stay somewhere. And it, it, it's at least it's not fear of the unknown if you stay there. Even if it's not a good situation, you know what it is. And you might always feel like you have the ability to change it because of how good a player you are. So I'm interested to see how it plays out for both of them. But I think Davis's situation in particular will be really interesting because I do think that they could be good. They've shown signs of being good before. And he is such a, a great player that I feel like if they put a couple of good players around him that can stay healthy, that that situation, could, I think it could change in the next year or two, um, depending on what happens with Holiday and if they lose Holiday, how they replace him and what have you. I find Davis the most interesting as well for an additional reason beyond everything you just said, which I agree with, which is the idea of risk. So Anthony Davis, I wrote a piece for Real GM back in the day advocating for him to take his qualifying offer. And part of the idea of the logic there was that my feeling from talking to people who know things and everything else like that is that it wasn't he wasn't taking the same kind of risk as other people because somebody was going to offer him a max even if he tore his acl the day before he was a free agent somebody would have offered him whatever they were allowed to offer so i understand why with a player like cousins where that is less clear that you go for especially if you can get the 35 percent max a year ahead of time that's a very different thing than asking somebody to sacrifice it the day of to say oh, well, you can take a million less or whatever else like that to make it work. And in Durant's case, he didn't actually sacrifice anything because he had the same contract because of the way that the salary cap moved. So he he hasn't yet. He probably will next year, but he hasn't yet. And with Davis, it's a different risk premium than with Boogie. And so he can make that choice, but I understand why he probably won't because it's terrifying to do it. Yeah. You know, another thing, and it's still kind of, I mean, I won't say it eats away at me because, you know, on a personal level, I, have, I don't think about this sort of thing every day. But I did I did legitimately feel bad. I mean, this is a guy that has more money than any of us will ever see. But that whole – think about back to that, what was it, a $25 million bonus he would have gotten had he made an all-NBA team. And you start factoring in stuff like that. Not to say that would have changed, you know, if he would have been able to get that, that that fundamentally changes the way someone thinks about a future choice of extension or resigning or – asking out, you know, via trade demand or what have you. But, you know, the, the money for these guys, it, even if it long term isn't that big of a difference, when you're talking in one and two year cycle sometimes or signing early versus waiting it all the way out, that's still substantial money, especially with the way that the salary cap has changed. We're still talking about substantial money. And so I still think back to that and feel like, man, like I do wish he'd made an all NBA team. He obviously would have made one and he stayed healthy that whole season, been able to play the whole year. You know, there are some really fascinating questions ahead because, you know, and this has been talked about. It's not a a novel idea, but there are just so many singular stars. And by that, I mean, like on their own teams, like that they're the only star player within, you know, 400 miles of the franchise that are just on teams. They don't have a whole lot around them. Now, Davis, like I said, I think Drew Holiday is sorely underrated, not talked about as a star. He's not a star. 
but he's a good player. And I think that that core you could actually build around to some extent. But that said, I, you know, I don't know that Drew Holiday is such a game changer that it would stop someone like Davis from leaving. That said, I don't know that Holiday would stay in New Orleans because of the fact that Davis is there. So there's, there's a whole lot to consider, but you just have so many guys in the league right now that it kind of feels like they're on an island just because it, you know, you know they're not going to contend for something meaningful for quite a while. And, and Boogie fits that, that bill, and I think Davis is as good as he is and it, as well as the Pelicans play at times. They've played much, much better since Holiday's been, been available. Um, they've been, basically been a 500 team. But you know, that's just the reality of where a lot of these teams are right now is that they're, they're not good enough to really, really contend, and it, it leaves them with hard questions for their star players. The hope is always that it's going to work out like what's happening with James Harden, where, you know, Harden was in, while granted, two years ago, they were the number two seed and made the conference finals. So they are not in this desolate, they were not in this desolate spot in the first place, but they were able to build not only a good team, but a really fun team around Harden. But that required a lot of cap flexibility that required an owner that was willing to spend and it required really good GM work. And Houston was able to do all those at the same time. I'm sure some of those players will sit there and go, well, that could happen to me and maybe stick around. But we could also see a lot of really high end players that not only make it to 28 to 30 without having made the conference finals, but without having made much of a dent in the playoffs like that are really good, talented players. I'm not looking forward to that. I get so tired of the, the push and pull narrative. Uh, you know, we, we've had to hear this forever about Chris Paul. You know, thank goodness that Carmelo made a conference final uh, in the West before he, he moved on to the Knicks because we don't have to hear it with him. But even with him, I mean, you hear about how big a playoff failure he's been and everybody else. And the truth is, if you have these super teams and, you know, there's all this pressure on guys to win. I mean, that's the one thing about Kevin Durant. I don't blame him. On the one hand, I was disappointed that like the basketball fan in me was kind of disappointed that he left because I actually felt like it, it, it totally shifted the power balance in the West where probably the best long term challenger to Golden State, you know, they, they fell flat when when a player like that moves from one team to the other. And they were so close to taking Golden State out the year before. You know, I don't blame him for moving to the better team, because if you don't do that, then you never come up, you know, with a ring. By staying where you are, then you have to face the whole you never won a ring argument forever. You know, the rings argument that is perpetuated, not so much in the media, but I think more so by fans. And so there's, you know, there's pressure from the one side that don't leave. And if you leave, you're not loyal. And we saw that, you know, in full blast in Oklahoma City this past weekend. But then, you know, we we sit here and we judge players by, you know, how many rings do they have and where do they fit in the all-time spectrum and if you don't have rings, then you can't really be a realistic part of that conversation. And that LeBron's not a top five player if he doesn't win this many rings. Or, you know, LeBron has lost in the final, so he can't ever be as good as Jordan was. Like, what kind of mess is that? And so I, I feel like you can't blame these guys for leaving their situations if they do choose to do that when that's the kind of narrative that we have about sports. But on the other hand, we look at a guy like Carmelo, who's by a lot of the Nick fan base now kind of being killed – uh, and obviously he forced his way out of Denver, so it's not like this is the first place he's ever played or the only place he's ever played. But, like, you kind of take it on both sides here. You know, people – he's trying his best to be loyal and to follow through on a promise that he made to New York. You know, they traded – moved heaven and earth to get the guy. And now he's trying to stay there. And I kind of feel like he's – you know, he gets booed at the Garden. And it's just – it's a very weird dynamic. I don't think fandom is a rational thing. I don't – Oh, it most, isn't. 
most people wouldn't argue that it is, but it's just it kind of shows you like how irrational it can be at times. Like this is what people wanted. People would have cursed the guy's name had he left the Knicks to go to the Bulls or anywhere else, and now that he's stayed and stuff has gone a little bit sour. I don't think because of him, but I, you know, I think there's some things that he's done that haven't necessarily helped. But I mean, it is a toxic organization that he plays for, and so. Um, the fact that he's—I mean, the fact that anybody wants to play there right now, let alone a guy that is going to be a Hall of Famer—and I'm sure you know Carmelo very realistically may want to go into the Hall of Fame as a Nick. You know, the fact that people are booing him when he isolates and misses a shot, like it's just a very weird dynamic in several of these places right now. In a way that you know, who knows? Based on the way future CBAs shake out, and based on you know how how prevalent the idea of the super team is in this era. Who knows whether we'll ever see this again where you've got so many guys that are just in really bad situations, not winning situations, not winning situations at the same time. And particularly guys that are just stud players. But it's a, it's a really interesting time that we're in right now. Going to take a quick break from the conversation to tell you about our longtime sponsor, Audible. I wish the conversations about legacy were very different. And for me, the most important part is what is your role in elevating the team? And yep. a lot of a lot of the misfortune that befalls some of the legacy guys in the current era is because people say things like, oh, Michael Jordan and Larry Bird and Magic Johnson didn't leave. Guess what? They had really good teammates and played in major markets. Like that is yeah. a very different thing from Anthony Davis being drafted by the New Orleans Hornets and then becoming the New Orleans Pelicans and their team basically sucking the whole time. Like that's yep. that's a very different conversation and it frustrates me that there are people who do not understand those differences. Right. However, I think that what separates this from that and from Chris Paul is Chris Paul was, first of all, an MVP candidate, and he should have won one year when he was, incidentally, when he was in New Orleans. And, yep. and so, you know, he's never made the conference finals, and I think that's going to be the big difference is it's not the Charles Barkley, you know, making it to the finals once and falling out and coming coming close a couple other times. We might see Anthony Davis or a few of these other guys. I'm using him a lot, but it could be it could be any number of these players. I use Davis because he's actually finished in the top five of the MVP voting, so he's a little bit different. We could see them not even like come close to the conference finals. Like Davis has made the playoffs once and they got swept. Right. So if that continues for another couple years, maybe they win a playoff series once or twice then that's something very different than what Chris Paul has done. That's something very different because they just have inferior talent. And the more the league restricts the movement of the best players, the harder it is going to be for that because they can make rational choices. And while I'm totally fine with an individual doing whatever they want, whatever they're allowed to do, the league is encouraging it to a degree that is actually isolating some of their most captivating players. Yeah, that's an interesting argument that these guys are going to get even more locked into whatever situations they're already in. Oh, I wanted of- to bring I wanted to bring a small point though, sorry. Melo, I am amazed that his legacy has not been tarnished or whatever word you want to use for it as much by the way that he forced himself to New York because he made a lot of that happen because it opened the door for him to get more money because under the old CBA you know he's a big part of the the inspiration for the like trade and extend and all that sort of stuff that's actually inspired by him and if he had just been willing to take a little bit of a sacrifice actually closer to what Wade did when they added in Bosch and LeBron 
they could have kept Gallo. They could have kept Wilson Chandler and a lot of these other guys. And while he was free to do what he wanted, in many ways, him making that decision and the Knicks facilitating it, which they also did not have to do, that right. helped help lead to the situation where they are now. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's honestly, at times, I don't know if it is now, but at times that's been the number one driving factor for him is that he, he even said that at some point. I don't remember who he was speaking to, but he said that that was on his mind when he decided not to leave. He didn't want to give up on the uh, on the Knicks because he basically said, I forced my way there and they gave up everything to get me. And so it would feel really unfair to some extent to turn my back on them when they did that. I mean, think about how devastating that would have been the Knicks at the time. Now, that's what I'm saying is that why fans would have been furious with him and how kind of backwards it is on the one hand to say, we don't want you to leave us. But then when you come back two, two, three years into the deal, say, get out of here. We don't want you or to boo him when he isolates with the ball goes one on one. But I mean, he he basically said that, that had he left, you know, all of a sudden they get nothing for him and that they had given up, what, a third of their team to get him. And not only just a third of the team, but like very talented players, very, you know, mostly role players. But Mozgov went on to be, you know, an NBA champion, not a star or anything like that. But him, Wilson Chandler's had some very nice years in the league. Gallinari struggled with the injuries, but he's been a very good player when he's healthy. And obviously the draft picks. And so, you know, who knows if, if they just wait, if Carmelo could have waited there. I don't remember what it was, 65 $66 million for the three years that he had on the extension or whatever that was. Um, if he could have waited, he, he made it clear why he didn't want to because he wasn't sure what was going to happen with the lockout. If he could have waited and the Knicks just signed the guy out, right? I mean, that all of a sudden probably does become a title contender. They might have needed a little bit more on the back end still. I mean, at least, but think about it. I mean, you would have had a pretty good team there. I mean, you would have had Chandler there. You would have had Mello I don't know that you would have had Tyson Chandler, but you might not have needed him as urgently because you would have had Mozgov. They already had some decent talent on that team. You had Stoudemire still. You had Landry Fields before it seemed like he and Melo hated each other. So, I mean, you you, you had a pretty good thing going there. And, um, you know, they had to trade away so much to get Melo that they were a pretty bare roster outside of Carmelo and Amari. But if you could have kept that roster intact. So I, I, don't, I don't know that he deserves a ton of ridicule for that. I understand why he did it. Um, I think it still would have been possible for them to be a good team. I think they kind of bungled the best chance they had. They, they went and got Tyson Chandler, and you know Amari was just a huge drain on their on their salary cap because he was not healthy. But they had a good thing going. They they broke a record for threes made and taken in a season. They had you know Melo playing at the four. They were using two point guards at a time and playing small ball. Mistakenly fell into small ball the same way that a lot of other teams did, Miami and other teams like that, and then went away from it. You know, trade for Bargnani, and that that was kind of all she wrote. Woodson felt uncomfortable with the idea of playing small ball. You know, what I'm amazed by with Melo's legacy is that a lot of people question whether or not he's going to be a Hall of Famer, which for me is kind of the line oh, of demarcation. That's, that's, a, that's as, a silly question he is. Exactly. That's the line of demarcation as like whether or not I take you seriously in your analysis or like your understanding of the league and what it takes to be a Hall of Famer. He he's clearly is. But, I mean, looking – sometimes I just look at the basketball reference pages – and I look at the franchise pages, Denver specifically, and look at when Carmelo, before Carmelo was drafted, the three, four, five years before that, and the amount of times they made the playoffs, which I think was zero in the four years before he was drafted, and then look at after he was drafted in Denver, and the fact that I think they made the playoffs for, what was it, 12 straight years? That That's what I'm talking about with like a franchise-changing player. You, you can argue about Towns and Porzingis and all these guys, but it's rare to all of a sudden draft one guy, and granted, they did have some other players around him that were very nice players, 
um, over those first few years in Denver. But, I mean, that's franchise-changing talent. When you can take a team that hasn't been anywhere in four or five years and then all of a sudden can perennially make the, the playoffs in a tough conference. And not only do that, but eventually work your way up to the conference finals and take a couple games from the Lakers, I think it was. I think they, they went six in that series. So, I mean, he was he was a phenomenal player there. Uh, I mean, he's never been much of a defender, but, I mean, he was a really, really, really good scorer. They did put a good team around him. I think they had a good system for him. You know, I think it's a shame the way stuff has kind of turned out in New York, whether he stays there or not, um, because stuff should have worked out better than that, even with the forced trade. But if he hadn't forced the trade and it just waited as a free agent, knowing that the lockout would work itself out, they could have been – a team that would have made some real noise um, in New York had he just gone there as a free agent instead. He also could have timed his contracts differently, and he could have played the Bosch role in Miami. Yep. The other, the and, other and possibility. I, and I think that's what, I don't know if that was Howard or someone else, or maybe it was Windhorse that wrote that. But yeah, I mean, he, he was very concerned about the lockout thing. Maybe, I'm never going to say someone's irrationally concerned about something, because I mean, that at the time, I mean, like we said, that was a $66 million extension that he was able to sign with the Knicks, uh, and then sign and extend. And so, you know, again, more money than many of us will ever, ever see. So I'm not going to say it's irrational to, to be concerned about that, but to be concerned about it to the point where you make a decision that's going to lock you in somewhere and, and kind of restrict your freedom to go somewhere else or to join another situation. I mean, I think he was in on those conversations, but chose to act more quickly and to take care of his future then because he didn't know what would happen with the lockout whereas those other three guys waited out the process and obviously signed together. So I, he, he's basically said he's going to think back on a lot of that stuff because he wants to finish the champion, but it's not clear whether he'll be able to do that. And, you know, that might have been his best opportunity to do it. But, you know, you have people advising you. And like I said, I, understand, I, I totally understand how, you know, when you're talking about that much money and not knowing how long you're going to be out of commission because of a lockout, I, I do understand it. I understand it too completely, and you know it was a, it was a very different world then, and the the situation in terms of money has changed a lot. But there was real labor uncertainty back then, and I yeah. understand why he felt that way. I, I want to change gears a little bit to the end and just talk broader NBA. And I, I've asked this question a couple times, and people people enjoy it. Of just what teams do you like watching? Who do you find yourself watching now, day to day, when you're you know when you're sitting there at home on a night and just flipping through the NBA? Who do you find yourself stopping on the most? The Spurs, uh, which, you know, a lot of people would be like, you know, I've been wanting to have had my DVR set to record that game. They're playing against the Pacers. Kawhi's just playing unbelievable basketball right now. I mean, he's already one of the best defenders in the league. It's rare to see guys take this sort of jump where you look at his last few years, he's basically improved by like five or six points per game a year, which is kind of incredible, especially when you consider the fact that it's such a, you know, everybody touches the ball sort of system. A lot of what he's doing, like most of what he's doing is not forced. I mean, sometimes he's kind of forced to take shots because of where they are in the clock or what have you. But, I mean, he's just been playing such great basketball and hasn't really lost anything on the defensive end. Um, you know, I know Matt Moore wrote the story about kind of why their defense is so much worse with him on the court statistically. And, you know, kind of the almost like the plot twist of the story is like that he's so good defensively that teams are just trying to take him out of plays entirely. And so that's been interesting to kind of watch that chess match happen, but he's played such great basketball this year. And so him, the jazz have been particularly the jazz when George Hill's able to play have been really good, better than I've expected, even though I expected them to be really good this year. So they've been fun to watch uh, Philly when Embiid is there. It's just such a change of pace to see them winning again and obviously Washington has just been outstanding you know since the the new year began really 
you know, that's one other thing I found really interesting about the league this year is that think about all the teams that were horrible to start. New Orleans, you know, obviously Drew Holiday wasn't playing, but New Orleans lost their first, was it seven or eight games of the season? I think eight. I think it was and, eight. And, and now, like I said, it's basically been a 500 team since Drew Holiday has been back. Dallas was horrible. Worst record in the league through the first month, month and a half of the season. And now within striking distance of that eighth spot, you obviously have Miami, who has gotten really hot all of a sudden. They were the second worst team in the league for a long time, uh, record-wise. And now all of a sudden, they're within striking distance, potentially, of a playoff spot. And, you know, and, and Philly has, has gotten a lot better as well. And so looking at all these teams that started so slowly and now have kind of heated up all of a sudden, it's been really interesting to watch that too. And so I've caught myself kind of watching these teams that are on hot streaks, uh, Washington included. been a lot of fun to watch. That, that game against Cleveland the other night was a lot of fun to watch. And so, they, I mean, there's no shortage of teams to watch. I find myself really getting into certain players and trying to pick up tendencies in their games that I haven't noticed before. It's, it's been really different for me to just having changed jobs, going from having to cover one team to kind of having my pick of who I'm going to write about and why and which teams I'm going to include in my weekly column. And so I've had to watch more basketball and kind of a, a, a wider array of teams than I did before. And so it's been really eye-opening to kind of see how talented some of these guys are on a nightly basis as opposed to just being able to watch them when they're playing the team I write about. So those four or five teams probably stand out the most, and you know, in part because they're being driven by certain players that have just been playing out of their minds this year. It's really fun to watch the league as a whole and to be able to do that. I mean, I'm lucky enough through to kind of strike that balance by having no free time of watching both one team thoroughly and everyone else. But the Spurs also, the re- I watch their bench a lot. I, they have my favorite. It's a little bit different with Deadman now starting due to Pagasol being out. But mm-hmm. I love watching their bench because the ball just flies around. Sometimes it's Manu hitting like four threes in a game. Sometimes <laughs> it goes different directions. But that's always a lot of fun. And part of the reason I use the idea of like where, where you end up sticking is because some nights that's how it is for me. I go through and I kind of get a feel for a game. And so Miami during their win streak, I ended up watching a lot of because I just I was so fascinated by like how this team was winning games through effort and through a lot of these guys that are on one year contracts just playing their hearts out. James Johnson has been a blast. I've really enjoyed watching him. Whiteside, some games just being a world beater, other games not really being that guy. And then Denver. I've watched a lot of Denver recently because Jokic is an unbelievable passer for his age, for his size, and just generally. And also because they're a little bit of rage watching too because you don't get to see, I, I, I tweeted out at one point that I think that it was something like, Jamal Murray, Jokic, and Gary Harris together had played, it was less than 50 minutes, I think it was less than 10, that wow. season to that point. It's changed with Moutier being hurt. But you get these inklings of, oh my god, this is how good they're, they could be down the line. But at the same point, they're still not there yet. And I enjoy that process of discovery a lot of times more than I do it. And that's why the Warriors have been fun for me this year. Because unlike last year, where they're just beating the crap out of everybody because they were really good and they had continuity, they've changed a lot this year. The, the rotations have changed, the way the guys are fitting together, the interactions on the court... And so those teams are more interesting to me than somebody like Cleveland, where while I'll watch the crap out of Cleveland in the playoffs, I don't need to watch them much in the regular season because they're not proving anything to me. I don't, I mean, this will come off as probably harsh. I don't really enjoy watching Cleveland. I mean, I, I, I'm like anybody else where I like watching the best basketball players in the world. So I, I watch them just like anybody else. But I mean, it, it, it's very rare that I come away with the take that there's anything new about them other than like, wow, LeBron's really good. And that's not new. I mean, it's kind of just being more amazed 
at how well they click sometimes. But I mean, at least with Golden State, they're still working through some stuff because I mean, that's a, it's a very new team. You know, most of the key pieces have been there. But anytime you had a player of that magnitude, it's much different. I don't get that sort of impression with Cleveland. I mean, the biggest I, – I actually will probably start watching more of them now, you know, once J.R. Smith is back and, you know, still trying to see how they fit Corbin in and whether he can be a real piece for them in certain matchups, depending on where – who they play in the playoffs. But, you know, the other team that I was really, really into – and I, I've – if you go back and, like, search my tweets – Go back like three years and you would see that I was really into certain elements of Milwaukee like three years ago. And so, like you said, it's really fun kind of discovering teams at the point at which they're just starting to figure things out. Like you were just saying about Denver. I've kind of been on that bandwagon with with Milwaukee for a while now. So that's the beauty of it, you know, especially when they, they were playing really well, you know, over maybe about a month ago. But it also is kind of devastating when you look at a situation like that and then see what happens to Jabari Parker. And so that had been a really fun team for me to watch. You know, one point in the season, not that long ago at all, you know, last month, they were top 10 in both offense and defense, you know, and giving all sorts of problems to teams like Golden State, to Cleveland, who they played really competitively. And, it, you know, it, it tells you how quickly things can change, how, how, you know, how people could be so optimistic about a team like that. As literally as they get Chris Middleton back and then that very night, Jabari Parker get hurt. So these young teams, I think young teams are always more fun to watch when they're figuring things out. Almost like, a, you know, I have a two-year-old nephew and watching him put two and two together with certain things and um, watching him interact with my dog or watching him drawing things and kind of drawing something better today than he did three weeks ago. How interesting that is and compelling that is to me, you know, as an uncle and it's kind of the same way when you watch a young team figure stuff out. So I, I completely agree with what you're saying about Denver in general, just because that's I find myself more intrigued by that than watching a finished product like Cleveland. It's also good to watch those teams early sometimes because they can tail off due to injuries or whatever else. Like, I want to see what happens to Minnesota. Granted, Minnesota never really had that peak this year, but, you know, with right. Levine being out and everything else, like, they're going to they're gonna change around. So appreciate it while you can, and then once it's gone, you can move on to the other teams. And with Cleveland, the exception to that is I always tune in, if I can, when it's a close game with five minutes or less left because Cleveland is maybe my favorite team to watch late in games because they just have so much shot creation talent and Kyrie, that's when Kyrie becomes Kyrie. So I watch them then and I kind of save it for that point. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, part of the challenge with me, I, you know, I'm on Twitter a lot. And so I'll, I'll see what people are saying about, you know, league pass and, you know, tune into this game because it's close. And so I'm like anyone else, I'll, I'll switch over if a game is close or something like that. But more often than not, especially as I've been trying to get a better grasp of the league as a whole for the last couple weeks, last couple months, whatever, since I took this new job, I generally have been watching entire games uh, of these teams. And so nice. uh, that might be a better idea is to kind of tune in for certain parts of games. But I guess for me, as I've tried to learn different teams' patterns, I want to watch entire games or at least big, big chunks of it so that I can see, like you said, with the Spurs, that you almost get more enjoyment out of watching their second unit play than their first unit, which is pretty established and has been for a while just because it's different and because you get to see new things and pick up on new things as those guys really develop and kind of make a name for themselves in the league. So, you know, every team is different. You know, I I feel like sometimes I almost want to cut back on watching certain teams. I actually was telling my editor the other day as I was writing my column, I was like, you know, I've written these columns for the last few weeks and uh, it's called the four point play where I, you know, the whole point of the column is to write about four kind of statistical anomalies or, or really just interesting stats that, 
tell you something about an interesting trend or an unusual trend in the league or with a player specifically. And I looked at one or two of the columns I'd written in back-to-back weeks, and I was like, you know, I got to challenge myself to watch more games on certain parts in certain parts of the country mm-hmm. because it becomes really easy when you live in one part of the country to watch games in that time zone. I wonder if it's a little different for you living out west, depending on what time you're available to really start watching stuff. But because of the time difference, for me, it becomes really easy to watch a New Orleans game. It becomes really easy to watch a Bulls game or a, a Bucks game because I'm in the same time zone. And so I, uh, you know, I told my editor that he was like, I didn't even pick up on that, but you're right. You know, like most of your items have kind of focused on teams that are in the Midwest, Dallas or Houston or what have you. And so it's funny because like I find myself trying to wake up later so that I can stay up later to watch games later in a different time zone, just so that I can watch the entire league as opposed to just, you know, it can be really easy to focus on like 10 or 12 teams and not the rest of the league when you do that. So you know, it's it's a really fun challenge, and I, you know, I'm, I've missed writing about the Knicks sometimes, but it's also very cool to be able to look at every team and truly get to see every team for what they are. Yeah, I've kind of taken a hybrid approach to what you do. I watch a lot of halves. I find that that's a, a better thing because when I get committed to a game, sometimes the game ends up turning, but usually it doesn't turn in a half, so I can do it at that point. And and I've I, I don't do a rigid schedule in that way, but I I go if it's been a week or something or maybe two since I saw a team. Then, yeah. I'll, then I'll say, okay, well, I'll look at the, because like, that's another benefit. Part of the reason I do the league, I write a league pass games of the week column for Real GM is so I can actually look at the schedule. It was a process I was doing before I wrote the column, and I just went, why don't I just turn this into a column? And so I wrote it as a column, <laughs> and like I was kind of diagramming, okay, maybe I'm going to watch this first half and watch that and that sort of thing. But then I also am open to embracing the chaos of what happens. So, you know, if a team, if, if Giannis is going on, a, is, is people are saying like, oh, he's having a huge, huge stretch, I'm going to go over to that game and everything else. And also the ability to go back and watch tape. You know, it's a lot easier now to, to go back and watch every shot Nikola Jokic took against the Knicks. Like, that's easier now than it was five years ago. So I don't have to kill myself to catch the end of a run. I can just watch the whole thing later on. <laughs> I was using Synergy the other day while my girlfriend was over. And she's, she asked me what I was doing, and I told her I was literally looking at clips just of Kyrie splitting pick and rolls. Nice. And she was, and she was like, "What kind of technology is this?" And I, you know, and she's like, "That's really cool." And I was like, "You have no idea how much time this saves me to be able to use something like this. Where if I see something in a game, I can just go back and watch every single time he's done this for the whole season, and how much time it saves me in going back to watch games." where I can at least be targeted about how I'm going to watch something as opposed to just watching everything over and over and over again or having to scroll back on the DVR or anything else like that. And so she was, it was funny. Like I, you know, synergy is like, it's not old hat to me. I'm still very impressed with what it can do, but it's amazing how playing certain things back has become so much more convenient than it ever would have been five years ago. Yeah. It's, it's a really amazing, amazing service. And I'll, I'll end this with a question. If you don't have a clear answer, that's no problem whatsoever. But if you had to, if it was your vote, that was the only vote that counted and the season ended, let's say yesterday, cause it makes it more fair. Who would be your MVP? Harden. There's no question in my mind right now. I mean, I, and it's funny, you know, I, I I'm not really sure who else people have in their conversations. I mean, I think Kawhi absolutely deserves consideration and probably more than what he's gotten. LeBron has had an, another great season and it's you know they kind of fall apart with him not on the court at times but you know the thing is like nobody expected Houston to be this good they've, they've held their own on defense a lot better than I think a lot of people expected Harden's numbers aren't far off if you're big on counting statistics Harden's numbers aren't far enough off from Russ's to really distinguish and say Russ deserves it and I also think that you know Russ 
plays in a game like the one against Golden State and they're not even competitive. There's only so much one person can do. And we said this at the beginning of the year. I remember Tim Bontemps kind of said months ago that he thought that Russ was far and away the, the favorite for MVP, and I didn't agree with that. And I also didn't think that, that someone like Kevin Durant would win just because I think, you know, it's not quite the LeBron situation where when he went to Miami and it seemed like there was kind of an agenda to vote against him because he was joining a super team. But I, I do think there's a little bit of, you know, Steph and Durant kind of probably splitting some of that vote or maybe because they're both contributing at such a high level that they, you know, the one guy won't get a, a massive share of the vote because of it. I really do think it's hard though, because I just think he – He's going to be on a team that's going to finish in the top half of the Western Conference standings or in the top half of the, you know, the, the playoff race. He's going to have huge counting statistics. He's been efficient all year. They've played better defense than people expected. And I don't think that Russ's numbers are going to be so much better than his on a counting level to where you can really say that he deserves it over Harden. Harden has had 50-point triple doubles. I mean, it's ridiculous when you think about what he's been doing. Um, it's just been the perfect fit between his play and Mike D'Antoni's coaching style and kind of his offense. You know, I also think that he deserved, you know, arguably a, a greater share of the vote than what he got um, when he was head to head with with Steph before. Maybe not a greater share, but like he very much deserved to be right behind Steph in that vote before. And based on that, you know, I, I think that this might be the kind of the perfect storm where he's, he, you know, he just deserves it. And I think. It's really hard to make an argument for someone like Russ in a year where he's doing so much of it by himself and it's not really putting his team in any different of a position. You know, this is basically – I looked at it the other day. Look at Russ's per 100 possession statistics this year and look at them from 14-15 when Durant missed most of those games with his foot problem. I mean they're not that different and I, I kind of feel like he's playing the same style just even at a more furious pace than he did before. And they finished – tied for eight that year and missed the playoffs in this year, they're looking like they could be a very solid seven seed. And so it's, it's not that different from that season. You know, I, I think he's kind of gone supernova where he's doing even more by himself, but it, it's not enough winning to convince people to vote him in as the winner. I think he'll probably finish second or third this year. So I would vote hard. I mean, I, I just think he's had an incredible season. It's resulted in winning. Um, I think they'd be horrible without him out there in terms of, you know, long-term situation. So I, that would be my vote. And I don't, I wouldn't even think that much beyond voting for someone else uh, instead of him. Certainly interesting. I have Harden and Westbrook together and then a golf and then probably Kawhi. Chris Paul would probably be with Kawhi if he'd play the whole year, but he hasn't. So he doesn't count. Chris Paul's great this year. They've yeah. been, it was incredible. Yeah. And they've, so, they've fallen off a lot without him there. I've said it before, but my test for MVP is very different from other people's and that's fine. You know, you don't have to define it, but for me, it's a pretty, it's a thought experiment, but it's a pretty basic thought experiment, which is that if you took a player and you replace them with a league average guy at the same position or role. So in Harden's case, then you avoid the whole, Oh, well, league average shooting guard wouldn't hand, do the offense. He does. If you wanted to find him as a point guard for the purposes of this, this exercise, by all means, replace him with a league average player. Whoever's team has the greatest difference in wins is the person I feel is the MVP. And for me, that's Russ. It's Russ and Harden. Like they're, they're right in neck. And that's just because Westbrook's supporting talent is that terrible. Like they're not nearly as good. Steven Adams is a talented player, but he's not the foundation piece of a successful team. And like, I think a, a more limited, I don't even know, like maybe Drew Holiday. Would you say he's around a league average point guard? I actually think he's slightly, I mean, I don't know what, what his PR is or anything like that. I'd probably say he's better than average just because he's so good at, 
everything. Maybe not so good, but he really doesn't have many weaknesses, whereas the average player at least has some weaknesses, even if they're good at certain things. How about Bledsoe? You said that about about fair for a league league average starting point guard. Mm, he's having a really good year too. I don't know. There's you know, a lot what, of good you know what's cards. tough about that though is that so many guys. You know, we have a tendency to look at guys statistically, and so many of the point guards have big numbers, and so those two. I would say both of those guys are above average point guards. But I I, I get what you're saying. So yeah. you're saying so, so, if you replaced Westbrook with one of those guys, how they would do? Oklahoma yeah. City? That, that's basically that's basically the premise. But for me, it's Westbrook and Harden, and then everyone else because those two they're they're so central individually to their team's success. And if you replace them with an inferior player, they're going to mm-hmm. drop off a lot. Kawhi is is the next best guy in this argument because he does so much on both ends of the floor. Kawhi, yeah. I mean, the improvement that he has made is just. You mentioned this before. It's just all inspiring because you don't. His development track is something you don't see because he's gotten better at so many different elements of offense later in his career. Like, no, he's not old in any way, shape, or form, but he's better in isolation. He's better as a post up guy. He's better handling the ball. He can actually do a little bit more in the pick and roll now. His spot up shooting is miles better than it was two, three years ago. And to do that once you've already won Defensive Player of the Year is awfully impressive and has made him. Basically, he's filled the gap that they've needed to stay relevant, even as the talent around them has aged and retired. You know what would be interesting with him? I don't think this will happen, but I mean, you never know. If people kind of get split with the other two guys, and you know, if maybe some people just say, well, Kawhi is so good defensively, and look, he's averaging 25, 26, 27 a game, you know, he deserves to get a first place vote because I don't know who the other guys are. Or, you know, I don't know who who to pick between the other two that are both in such do-it-all sort of situations, which in some ways also helps inflate their numbers. Not to say that they, you know, that they're doing something wrong, but Kawhi, I mean, when you just look at what they do, he's not in a situation where he has to do everything by himself. And he's in a situation where he's playing a lot more defense than the other two are, in part because those other two are being asked to do so much on offense. Um, and so... I mean, it, it's an interesting situation. I think you could make a very good argument for Kawhi. I would almost probably be more compelled to vote for Kawhi over Russ just because I don't, again, I, and maybe it's just the way I, I look at it. Like you said, Oklahoma City is not very good if you take him off that team. But I guess for me, I don't see it. I know his usage is way up, but I, I don't see his situation now as being worlds different from what it was in fourteen fifteen. Durant played, I think, in 27 games that year, so he did – play in a substantial part of the year just not you know not half or anything like that but it was still a lot of games it's a lot different than not having Durant at all this year but you know I do think there are a lot of the same patterns there still in place you know he's assisting at an incredible rate even when he's not scoring you know or not taking the shot for them but I I'm so impressed by what Kawhi has done and and the efficiency with which he's done it like you said he's gotten better at pretty much every facet of offense and his defense his individual defense has not taken a blow at all uh if anything it's you know it's been right at the same level the team defense with him on the court is really hard to read because of what we were saying before but um you know they're also going to finish probably second at worst maybe third in the west and so it's you know you could make a a stellar argument for him i I just kind of feel like if it's going to be between harden and russ i would go with harden and i'll admit part of that might be because i've been pleasantly surprised at how good they've been as a team and a lot of that does stem from harden and and a lot of it is the fact that they've had so such similar ridiculous stat lines 
And I'd expected more of that to happen with Russ than I did with, with Harden. So I, I'd probably lean that way, but maybe some of it is just because I didn't expect. There is a very real chance that Kawhi costs Westbrook the MVP, and here's the reason. Because there will be people if, let's say the Thunder finish 7th, which I think is very possible that they finish 7th in the West, there will be some people who put a, a ceiling on what Westbrook can be in the MVP race because his team isn't comparatively as good. And Kawhi is then the logical first or second place vote with Harden getting the other one. And if Russ is third on too many ballots, he won't win. Yeah. The exception to that would be if he gets if he averages a triple double, there'll be some people that will just get stars in their eyes and see that and vote him first. And, you know, that's not why I would vote him first, but there are people who do that. But the other point I wanted to make on this, which is a, a fascinating one, I think back to an old Fangraphs article that I read on this about the fact that the marginal value of a win is not the same at every level. Uh, the difference between a 30 and 40 win team is, you know, it's notable. It could be, that's probably not playoff revenue, but it, you know, it's different. But the difference between a 50 and 60 win team is massive. That's, you know, potentially home court in a playoff series or two, maybe winning a playoff series or two. So even if maybe Kawhi only, if Kawhi only makes in a six game difference and Westbrook makes a 10 game difference, a six game difference to 60 win team is a whole lot more valuable. I mean, in a lot of years that makes you a one seed as opposed to two or three so that that's that's a it is a big difference I mean I I wonder I also wonder this too it obviously hasn't stopped uh Kawhi from winning defensive player of the year but there is a part of me that wonders how often do the people that are voting on this award watch Kawhi play versus watching Westbrook play in particular because of the sort of year this is I mean the Spurs didn't really so I mean the Spurs got Gasol but they didn't really add a whole lot on that team. They never really do. You know, that was why the Aldridge move was such a big deal for them. They never really add supreme talent to that team from year to year. So that team is still relatively the same as what it was last year. They were very good last year. They were 61 team last year. So the fact that, you know, that team came back the same way and the fact that Oklahoma City is so different this year that kind of compelled people to wonder what they'd be like. We knew that Russ would play like his head was on fire. And, you know, the fact that we're intrigued every time they play against Golden State, even though we know the game is not going to be close, that we make time out of our schedule to watch that game. And that, you know, that Russell is vying for kind of history here in a way by going for a triple-double and averaging a triple-double. There's more intrigue because of that than I think there is. I think there's also that inherent argument that has been wrong for years that the Spurs are just this boring team. I mean, Kawhi alone is one of the most entertaining players in the league for me to watch just because he might be the only guy I've ever seen repeatedly block people's jump shot. I mean, he's just an incredible defender. But aside from that, you also have the fact that he can, I mean, what was that streak that he had recently of the six or seven games in a row they scored 30 for the Spurs? I mean, he's just an incredible player. And so I wonder, though, you know, whether or not we just kind of take the Spurs for granted, whether there are still people out there that think of the Spurs as boring. Uh, the fact that the Spurs, when they are featured on television, that, you know, that people don't get excited about that the same way they do about an OKC Golden State matchup or an OKC Cleveland matchup or or what have you. Um, and I wonder, kind of the same way with Heisman voting, where sometimes when you have a guy that is in on the West Coast and people don't necessarily stay awake to watch those games when they're up for the voting, I wonder if there if there is kind of a bias with some of that with Kawhi, just the fact that people have taken the Spurs for granted for so long. And in a year where you have guys putting up crazy stats and you know almost averaging triple-doubles or averaging triple-doubles, if Kawhi kind of gets lost in some of that, he'll obviously finish in the top four, I would think, at this point. Um, I would guess, you know, top four, no worse than top five. But I just wonder if he's going, if he would have a real chance of winning based on some of the stuff that we've just kind of taken for granted with him in the Spurs. 
Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how the voters go, and I get, I get, I like to think of it separate from that. You know, it's kind of who should win and who will win. The other yeah. element of that is that a lot of the voters are people who cover a specific team, and while I personally am uncomfortable with that, if I were, I'm very uncomfortable with that <laughs> because you basically are guaranteeing limited sample size for those people because it's not their job. Their job isn't to watch the whole league. Their job is to watch one, to watch one team, and then they'll see other teams through that prism. And they're narrowing the opportunity. So that's my personal. I it's, I don't think I, I think it will fall on deaf ears, but I will make it anyway. I agree with you. I mean, I know a lot of people that make that argument. And I, every year, you know, I watched because I've never voted for any of this stuff before, and I haven't wanted to. I have so much respect for the people that watch the entire league, or even if they can't make an effort to do that. I, I, I watched the Nick beat writers all the time when I was on the beat. Sit and talk to each other and sit in there almost like their cubicles uh, at the arena and try to vote. And, you know, they'd look, I mean, to their credit, it's not like they're just doing it totally blindly. Um, they're looking at numbers, but I mean, there's, it's the same thing that people kind of criticize folks for the, the, the nerds that they call us in terms of, you know, you just look at numbers all day. And I, I kind of feel like that's how a lot of people end up voting. And sometimes when people do have the crazy out there vote, like why would you vote this guy for sixth man? And you see someone explain, well, he played great when he played against the Nuggets when I was here in Denver writing about Denver. And it's like, well, I mean, but people are going to have good games and bad games. And granted, you know, someone might leave a, a more memorable thought in your head if they go off for 35 on a given night. And then that's who you want to vote for six man of the year. But if that's a huge outlier of a, of a performance and that they're normally really horrible or really inefficient, like you said, it's a really limited sample size that you're voting off of. So I, I just think it's it's tough to vote for something like that when you're only watching one team most of the time. Uh, I kind of wish that the league would just have a set list of people that voted that wasn't the whole media contingent. Or if you let the, you know, I, I would say let the players vote for it, but you'd run into a lot of the same problems. I think a lot of them watch the league as a whole, but they don't get a full opportunity to do that because they're playing at the same time as each other. You know, I wish there was almost like a committee. I don't think you need hundreds of voters to do it, but it, I don't know. I mean, they're going to do what they want to do. But it, like you said, it makes me totally uncomfortable to consider voting for that. It makes me uncomfortable to vote for all NBA or anything else because, you know, I don't think these guys should have incentives drawn into their contracts that are based on something that we vote for. It makes me really uncomfortable to think that I could have an impact on someone's earnings because of something like that explicitly. Like if it's because they get commercials because they won MVP, that's one thing. But if it's because they missed out on three votes that would have given them all NBA status, and if they'd had that, they would have got $25 million more, that, that makes me uncomfortable, um, especially when so many of these guys can't watch the league every day. And so, you know, I understand it, but I, I don't think the media needs a place. I feel the same way about Hall of Fame voting and stuff like that. I just don't think that we need to be a part of that. I, I know it would piss people off. If they lost the ability to do that since the media's had a role in that in baseball for years and other sports as well, football, but I, I just don't think the media needs to. It makes me feel weird to think that people have that big of an impact on something that is kind of immortal for these guys. It's definitely a challenging circumstance to reconcile, and not only in terms of fairness, but just just overall, just to figure everything out. And I mean, I, I'm generally find awards uncomfortable in the first place, but they certainly serve a purpose. So I guess you just have to kind of find your best way through it. But is there anything else you think we should discuss? I mean, obviously, the two of us could probably go off on a, on a million other directions, but anything else that you feel like we should, like, of something that's happened in the last little bit? No, I'm just, I mean, the only thing I'm curious about, right after I bashed Cleveland and said that I 
Uh, I don't watch them or don't like watching them, I guess is what I said, because I do watch them, obviously. I'm just curious to see the way this plays out. I mean, I, I think they really need to get LeBron's minutes down. I mean, I keep looking at that thinking at some point they'll give this guy a real extended rest. It'll take his sabbatical that he had a couple years ago, um, that that's much needed for him because he's leading the league in minutes 14 years into the league. And, then you know, we, we take his health for granted all the time because he's never been hurt seriously before. And, um, you know, you see the news that they're getting JR back, but you also see the news that Kevin Love is struggling with knee stuff. You know, we, we've seen Kyrie be injured before, have serious injuries before. You just don't want to, you know, I, I, I feel like they're really kind of playing with fire here a little bit. I know LeBron's never been hurt, but it doesn't mean he's not capable of being hurt. They're going to probably finish as the one seed. I don't think that's really a concern for them, you know, as long as, you know, LeBron plays the majority of the stretch down the, down the rest of the year. But um, I'm curious to see, you know, JR has missed a lot of time. It looks like he's going to come back soon. You know, if they can keep everyone healthy and if they can do that, you know, I, I'm just curious to see how much anybody challenges them before they get to the finals if LeBron doesn't take a break because I kind of do feel like they're running the risk of him being really run down at the end of the season as you, as you get into a potential a finals matchup rematch with, with Golden State. I don't understand why they're pushing him this hard. They don't Neither. They don't need home court. They're not going to get it against whoever they face in the West. We already know that by now, and that's with them pushing LeBron really hard. So why? What are you, what are you doing this for? Just sit him more often, play him fewer minutes, whatever he wants to do. Your whole job, the enti- like, like the Warriors, their entire success is defined on whether they win the championship or not. And so... No, they can they can make the NBA championship. They can make the finals at whatever seed. They could make it as the sixth seed if they needed to. So why are they pushing? The only thing I can think of at this moment, I mean, they haven't played particularly well the last few weeks. I mean, longer than that, probably like the last three and a half or four weeks, they haven't played well. That I mean, so maybe it's that he doesn't feel comfortable taking a rest while they're playing so poorly compared to what they normally do. You know, on a relative scale. They haven't been totally, totally healthy over that stretch. Obviously, some guys have missed time. They're trying to build a rapport between LeBron and Corver, for instance, going into the playoffs. But, I mean, we're, we're at the all-star break. I mean, they could have kind of pared things down a little bit going into this stretch while they're going to have some downtime. I've, I've been surprised all year at how much he's playing. I even looked at the situation with Levine. Levine was one of the other guys leading the league in minutes at the time. And, and then, obviously, he tears an ACL, and it, it made me think, I mean, not that it should have, but it made me think about LeBron and the fact that he's playing more minutes than a guy like Levine, a young, healthy kid, you know, or, or so we think with regards to his knees and everything. And LeBron's health, you know, and so many people will say, you know, oh, HGH and everything else. Like, there's no proof of any of that. No one's ever really had anything real to say about that or to suggest that. But we take that for granted because it's never happened with regards to him getting hurt. But if it did, it would be the biggest story in the league and it would literally change the balance of the league for the rest of the year, depending on, you know, how serious injury it is for next year too. And so they really, I really do feel like they need to be careful with that just because it's, I mean, he's the one guy, if if you do lose him, you have no chance of winning a title. You lose the other two guys that are key guys for you. I mean, we've seen them be competitive without those two before uh, with Kyrie and Kevin Love. And so it's always a possibility to win when you have them. But if you don't have them, there's no chance, regardless who else is on the floor to play for you, even with two max level stars. You have no chance if LeBron's not there. So it's not necessarily real compelling or anything like that. I just think it's interesting that, like you said, I, I thought I would have thought by now that they would have started cutting back his minutes significantly, and they haven't done anything close to that. Yeah, it's shocking and it's surprising, and we hope it doesn't rear its head because that would be terrible, but it's something worth watching to be sure. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Always a pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on, Danny. Thank you so much. 
Thanks so much to Chris Herring for taking the time to come on. You can read him at 538. He's doing some great work there. And as he talked about doing some bigger pieces, did a nice one on players coming home and then also doing a weekly a weekly piece, the four point play, which I highly recommend as well. You can also follow him on Twitter at Herring underscore NBA, H-E-R-R-I-N-G underscore NBA. An episode I really enjoyed. If you might have caught it, I kind of did a lead in about it. Uh, probably about an hour 10 in about, oh, well, then maybe this will be towards the end. And then we ended up going for another half hour because we love talking about this kind of stuff. And Chris is so knowledgeable about the league. And we've been talking in the early days of the drama surrounding the Bulls and the Knicks about doing this and actually waiting a week and a half to get it done helped a lot because it, it had a resolution. We recorded this before the Oakley kind of the the meeting that happened. I think that was on Tuesday morning. So that's why it wasn't incorporated in this. And also it was before the announcement of Kevin Love's injury. So he, we knew that he was hurt, but we didn't know how long he was going to be out or this, any of the stuff that came out today. So you can definitely check you know, you, you can find our responses to that probably on Twitter and various other places around on the internet. Actually going to be on a short break from Real Jam Radio. I am taking a, some would say, ill-timed vacation. We'll, we'll have to see based on what trades happen. I'm happy the Ibaka trade happened before I left. I will be gone all of next week, so there will not be a Real Jam Radio. This one will have to tide you over until then. One of the elements that I'm really proud of with Real Jam Radio is that a lot of the episodes stand the test of time. Maybe the content can get a little bit old, but the the substance is there, particularly episodes I do about people's careers. So like the one I did with Sam Amick or some of the material with Lee Jenkins and even just going back and listening to older, earlier stuff. If you dig far enough back, you can find Nate Duncan's first podcast appearance anywhere was on Real GM Radio. Did a, a great one. Actually, the second episode ever of Real GM Radio was with Ethan Sherwood-Strauss. Really enjoyed that one. So if you want to, if you're feeling the itch for whatever reason, there's a lot that you can go back and enjoy. Also, a lot of other great podcasts in the CLNS radio family, which Real Jam Radio is a part of, and I'm thrilled to be a part of that. So you can check all of those out or any of the things that my frequent guests are a part of because I have them on for a reason. That's because I heartily enjoy their work, always do. And if you want to send any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com at Danny LaRue on Twitter. My standard line, but I, I say it because I believe it, is that if you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I make no promises about responding, but I try. But I, I don't promise to do it right away or to do it at all, but I will read it because I have to. I, I, that's very, very important to me. So I always do that. If you take the time and really it is good, bad, or indifferent, it's best if it's constructive, but outside of that, pretty cool with it. So you can do that. If you want to support the show, you sh- can and should subscribe download every episode. I'd love for you to listen to every episode, but if you download everyone, that's a big help as well. You can also leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's iTunes because it still has more resonance than other ones, but if it's something else, welcome that as well. And another thing, I don't mention this enough, is that if you hear or if you if there's a podcast player you use and you find out that we're not in it or that we're not updating properly, let me know because that is a way that we can, sometimes we're missing listeners or something like that because there's a syncing issue. I know that happened at one time with Stitcher, but I think we're fine there now. And those sorts of things, really, it's so much easier to find based on listener submissions because otherwise it's finding needles and haystacks and there are a whole bunch of haystacks in this world of audio. So really do appreciate that. The other amazing way that you can support this show is by checking out our sponsors. For this episode, that is ZipRecruiter. You can post a job for free using Zip 
ZipRecruiter.com slash sportsfan and Audible. Still working my way through, actually, with all the flights that I'm about to take. I'll probably finish Bruce Springsteen's autobiography, which is awesome. And then I have another one, which is on, I think it's on The Princess Bride that sounds like it's going to be great. So that's www.audible.com slash try now. You get a free month subscription and a free audiobook. And it's it's something I used long before they were a sponsor. It's something I will use long after, though hopefully they sponsor us forever. And that's a great way to support the show also because it says that you came from us. And in the case of Audible and in the case of ZipRecruiter, you get to do it for free. And I'm a fan of both of their products. So it's even better when I get to promote sponsors that I personally enjoy and that enjoyed long before they were sponsors on the show. So that's enough rambling for now. I will be back at some point in the middle of the week after next. Don't know exactly what the topic's going to be. The league is going to look maybe very different when I get off a boat. And it'll be exciting to, to kind of see what happened at that point and, you know, hop back into everything dunked on Twitter NBA show, writing for The Athletic, writing for Real GM. And I'm hoping, not completely definite, I'm hoping to have some quality time with the CBA while I'm on the boat. And so in that case, I will also probably have some CBA encyclopedia material, though that might come a little bit later in in the year, might come later in March, just depending on what my timing is. But I love the C- CBA encyclopedia. I love helping out Real GM. So that will be coming at some point in the future. I just don't know exactly when. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.